Psychomedy is brought to you by ThreadUp, Manchester-based therapy that supports creativity. I'm Rafaela Nunes, the founder of ThreadUp and the counsellor supporting the creative community. Comedians and creatives in general can experience anxiety, depression, low moods, and this in turn can affect their creativity. One-to-one counselling can facilitate a safe space for creatives to explore any difficulties, to gain self-awareness, to develop strategies that work, and ultimately to create choices that are aligned with the natural creative flow. If you're in need of support, then please get in touch. Visit threadup.co.uk to book your counselling sessions at reduced rates when you quote Psychomedy. Episode of Psychomedy. I'm Nathan Cassidy, stand-up comedian and Bachelor of Science in Psychology, a degree I definitely remember every single word of, and it gives a massive amount of credibility to me discussing the psychology of stand-up comedy. With today's very special guest, the brilliant Laura Lex. Hello. Hello. <laughs> How are you today? Um, I'm all right. I'm a bit. I've, I've spent too much time on Twitter looking at election gloom, but other than <laughs> that, I'm pretty good. That will ruin anyone's mental health. Yeah. So, uh, as normal on Psychomedy, we won't be looking at each other for the duration of the conversation. Laura is sitting up with her legs crossed, I believe, at the corner of my eye. I can see that (laughs) on my sofa here. So, um, Laura, you've talked very openly in your your last few shows about mental health issues. And there's a particular clip from Ouch on the BBC that has got a lot of interest over the last couple of years how did that how did that feel that particular we'll play that clip in a minute how did that um feel that clip getting particular interest online yeah i didn't expect it to go as big as it did that clip but it was quite nice because mm. to be honest i felt really unsure about doing that gig because i was not at all sure because the whole evening was sort of supposed to be about voices that um have some sort of mental or physical health interest you know or difficulty or whatever word you would choose to define your own experience of living with your body and your brain Mm. and I kind of felt a bit impostery like oh I don't know if I'm ill enough to be here (laughs) and I was sort of stood backstage going I just don't know if I'm the I feel like a bit of a fraud being here and then my husband said so hang on a minute you're worried that you're not worried enough to go and talk (laughs) about your worry on stage and I was like yeah you're probably right mate I think I'm worrying enough so it was quite nice, really, that the end result of it was a lot of people identifying with it. Yeah, because it did get, what, millions of views, did it? Or I think so, yeah. I haven't checked it for a while, but I think last time I checked it, it was a couple of million, which is crazy, isn't it? Yeah. And did anything particular come out of that in terms of people talking to you about those issues or more than um, they had done before? or? Yeah, I th- well, because it came out at the same time as I was doing an Edinburgh hour on a sort of full-length show called Trying at the time, which was all about my mental health 
of the last couple of years and sort of how it had been affected by trying to have kids and mm. struggling to conceive a bit and how trying to conceive had really compounded this problem I was having with anxiety and worry and, and depression and so I don't know I, I guess a lot of people did get in touch off the back of BBC Ouch but at the time there was just a lot of people getting in touch about a lot of things so mm. it's all a bit blurry in my head but yeah well should we have a listen in to that clip started trying for a baby we got three months in and I was diagnosed with depression and generalized anxiety disorder and we found out that uh, my husband can't have children because of my personality <laughs> If you're making that noise now, you're going to be in trouble by the end of the show. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, uh, I did. I, I got depression instead of a baby. Uh, it's, uh, it turns out, though, depression and children, very similar things, actually. All my friends have got kids now. I've got a 22-month-old depression, and you cannot tell me apart from my new mum friends. <laughs> we're, we're all overtired. We've all got stains on our clothes, and none of us are as much fun at parties as we used to be. I just go to quieter support groups. <laughs> Same padded play area, though. <laughs> so, uh, some people have trouble listening to themselves back. Are oh, you one of those people, or is it...? Uh... The saving grace with listening to that is you can hear how knackered my voice is from a month of Edinburgh, so at <laughs> least my brain is picking up and going, oh, it sounds a bit different. I do hate listening back to it. <laughs> how about particularly when you're talking about those kind of issues? It is really hard, because sometimes I think I'm doing something important and sometimes I think I'm exploiting the worst thing that ever happened to me to get a career out of it and just varies as to how I feel about it that day and I never quite know whether I've done the right thing or not. That's the difficult thing with having a mental health imbalance or whatever, I don't know what to call it, but mm. is that you never feel the same about it for more than 20 sodding minutes at a time. So one minute you're like, yay, I've done, I've done something with my career. And the next minute you're going, oh, maybe I would have been more popular or successful or happy if I'd just not brought that into my work. I don't know. You, you don't stay yeah, the yeah. same feelings, do you? No, I guess that is a question that's, you know, in terms of happiness, whether talking about them makes it better or worse. I don't know whether you've you've really considered that or you're just going with the flow and... Um... I've always found the things I wasn't willing to joke or talk about have been because of fear and the fears made them worse. So I, I've always had anxiety problems, but when mm. I hit whatever I hit at the back end of 2016, which is where I count everything as having really come to a grinding halt, I just remember being too scared to talk about how I was feeling, even with my husband, and I've always had such an open um, dialogue with him. Mm. Um, so now I'm really wary that if I don't want to mention something and I don't want to talk about something or I don't want to joke about something, then I know it's because I'm scared of something happening by it being out in the open. Like, I was too scared to tell anyone I was scared of global warming because I thought someone would say, yeah, it's not a mental health disorder, you're just right, the world's fucked. Mm. And I didn't want to hear that, so I didn't tell anyone about it. So now I'm kind of quite keen to take the sting out of things by laughing at them or at least turning them into fodder because it stops them being as big and frightening as they are. Yeah, yeah, that's great. I mean, 
As I'm sure you know, I mean, the general anxiety disorder and depression, you know, a significant percentage of the population, 5 to 10% of people are going through what you're going through. So, um, you know, personally, I think it's a great thing that you're, you're talking about it. Thanks, mate. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned that you, you know, a particular trigger in 2016, but you mentioned that um, you were suffering from anxiety before then. Can you trace that all the way back to childhood or...? Or not as early as that? Mm, I don't know, really. Because the problem that I have with mental health stuff is I just didn't really realise that any of it wasn't just how your brain worked. I thought yeah. everybody was firing constantly with their brain, just shouting a million things at them. Mm. Um, I do think maybe I was a bit of an over... Like a... I don't know, like an overthinky kid... But I don't know if it was abnormal or not. Like, what is normal anyway? Yeah. Um, I'm not, I, I think when I was around 15, 16 is when I really remember really struggling with being unhappy as opposed to just having these bouts of worrying. Yeah. Um, which I think is quite normal, but I think a lot changed in my life in a really, really short period of time, like changing schools. And I had my first significant death, which I was lucky to get to 16 without having had one. Mm. And like my sister moved out and everything that had been very solid and very set got shaken in quite a short time frame, and I didn't cope with it well. And that was the first time I went for therapy, I think, or had to see a counsellor at my college or yeah. whatever it was. So... But I suppose, I mean, I haven't fundamentally changed, so I suppose maybe I did worry more than I should have done. But mm. And did anything particular come out of that therapy in terms of a greater understanding of what you were going through? Is that, has that been something you've done um, ever since then, like 15, 16 kind of therapy? Um, no, I then didn't have therapy again until everything kicked off in 2016, oh, okay. 20, okay. whatever that year was. Um, uh and has that given you a, a greater understanding? Is that something you enjoy doing? I didn't enjoy it. I hated it. Right. But it was helpful. Mm. I just found it so difficult because there'd be days where I'd go in for therapy thinking, but I'm happy today. I'm wasting this person's time. I'm wasting <laughs> NHS money. I'm a fraud. I'm not even that sad or anxious. And then there'd be days where I went in and I'd just feel desolate. And I'd just think, like, I can't talk my way out of this feeling this is just a reaction to the state of the world um but it has really helped me because it's the main things that really helped me were like sorting out what thoughts were what so like because my big trigger is the is the environment and the future of the planet and things like that, it was so helpful to just get a bit of clarity on, hey, here's the thing you're worrying about. It's a sensible thing to worry about. But here's why the worry isn't helpful, because you're worried about it to a point where you can't do anything. You are frozen because of worry. So... Mm. Here are the things you can do. You can change this, 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 this about your lifestyle. Here's the wider world that you can influence and you can either do that or you can not. And then these further things are just things you cannot do anything about on your own. You can be part of a bigger movement and these are the things you can do, but it is not on you to be awake until 2 a.m. worrying about this because it just means you're useless at doing the things you can do the next day. 
Yeah. So separating out different strands of thought was quite helpful. Was there any any particular trigger for that uh, eco anxiety, or mm. did you? I wanted to have a baby. Okay, so the same, the same mm. time. Yeah, I finished up Edinburgh twenty sixteen, and had nothing left in my way between me and having the children I've always wanted, yeah. and we were ready to start trying, and my brain suddenly went, "Is there enough planet left for your baby? Oh, well, <laughs> Is well. this a responsible thing to be doing?" It's very overpopulated. Are you sure you should be bringing somebody into it? Is it cruel to create a life knowing the food shortages and the fires and the floods that are coming? Mm. Is it all right to just make somebody and send them out into that because you want to buy a pushchair? <laughs> yeah. Okay. It's dismal, yeah. isn't it? It's really gloomy. <laughs> <laughs> why most of the time I just joke about knobs (laughs) (laughs) yeah well let's yeah let's maybe come back to to all this in a bit then let's um let's go go back to when you when you started comedy um what was your kind of psychological route into it you know uh, not in terms of you know starting off in these small gigs or whatever but in terms of your mind I mean for example, when I started, I just thought I need to do this for my own mind. I'd done little bits at university and I thought to keep me mentally happy, I need to do this. And even now today, when I take a little break, even if it's like two or three days, I can find myself getting a bit low. Was there any kind of psychological route in for you in terms of the way your mind was back in the day before you started? I don't know with stand-up. I know that writing made me feel better. Mm. Um, I think stand-up probably wasn't much of a psychological release at the beginning because I wasn't particularly good at it for a really long time. Mm. Um, So I liked it, I think. But I think more like writing long form. I remember having a full-time job when I'd left uni and I'd already started doing stand-up open mic stuff, but I would blog every day, like really long blog posts. Um, Okay. About, uh, about just the gig. about what was going on. And, no, more just creative writing and freeform writing and just anything to do something creative every day mm. because my job was so tedious. And yeah, and then these two shows you mentioned, so um, Trying in 2018 and, uh, and then your new tour, Nija, talking about these issues. You're doing that night after night. Is that, was that a positive or a negative experience that, that, that year? It was really hard on me doing trying. Yeah. I really found it difficult. Um, that's why we didn't tour trying after that Edinburgh was because I just didn't want to dwell in it. Yeah, I yeah. kind of wanted it to be done. Um, it was yeah, it was really difficult. Um, knee jerk is much easier to do because the point of knee jerk was to be much more socially minded. Um, the sort of idea behind knee jerk is I took the things I learned in therapy about working my own fears back to the root of the fear to work out what I was frightened of and I tried to apply them to a few social arguments that are raging at the moment um so the knee jerk tour in 2020 is going to be a sort of best of of knee jerk and trying yeah um which I'm really excited about because there's a lot of material from trying that I want to get out and get to a bigger audience and play with a bit more. Mm. But I just didn't want to do it in that capsule of a one hour show. So I'm excited to blend the two together yeah. and make a sort of combi tour. 
Are there bits of that show, though, that you said you did find difficult that you'll cut then for this new, yeah, new tour? Yeah. yeah, because it was a very narrative-based show. So it started out with me talking about like what family holidays were like as a kid yeah, and then setting the premise that I spent 2017 August when I should have been at the Edinburgh Festival in France on a campsite with my nuclear family, my sisters and my brother and my parents. Mm. Um, and then it sort of explained why that we'd gone on this holiday to get out of my current life and try and re you know that like button balmy idea in your head that like if I was six everything would feel great again how can I be six again let's go camping <laughs> it was that idea and so I sort of went through narratively this journey of like this is what's been going on but always coming back to this France holiday and why we'd gone and it was I'm really proud of that show and I love it and when I look back at it now I go this is a beautiful little show if I don't mind saying so myself <laughs> but to do that show exactly as I wrote it for the Edinburgh Festival requires going through that narrative. Whereas actually a lot of the chunks of the show are very good standalone pieces that deal with mental health or like um, conceiving or conception or ideas and stuff like that. So, and they fit very neatly in with what I've done in the knee jerk tour, mm. um, that show. So it'll be nice to pull some of those out without having to do the whole journey, but just picking and choosing a few select bits yeah, nice, of it nice. two years of trying for a baby and like I've got like lots of material on all this stupid advice you get given when you're trying to conceive and you know if you just if you just stop trying you'd conceive in no time and like all this <laughs> nonsense and then the, the thing that had made me happiest in this 18 months of absolute bleak feeling the happiest I was was playing one two three and in with my siblings on a campsite in France like it used to be when we were little yeah, and yeah. just kind of going oh I've been trying to get happy and it's happened by accident which sort of people have been telling me would happen with the old sperm and egg and actually I kind of got there but I really wanted that show to not end with like and from then on she was happy and pregnant and she got her family like <laughs> the end of the show was very much like no never got the baby not, not going to be able to have one didn't get everything still not happy all the time but I just found respite just for half an hour I didn't feel like the world was falling on my head. The sky was caving in, you know, and that was worth that solace. Just finding it for a minute just gives you the energy to carry on again. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we talk about like happiness as a kid and of course, and, and fear. You know, you're, when you're born, you're born with a certain amount of, you know, a fear instinct built in, a kind of fight and flight, you're, you know, you'll move away from fire and whatever, but... How do you feel about it now in terms of keeping that under control? If you think it's a good thing to keep it under control? or um, Well, I still feel fairly environmentally terrified, as I think everyone should. Yeah. But I've learned to try and channel that rather than being paralysed by it. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm terrified. I think it's terrifying. I, yeah. I have no words of solace for myself that it isn't as bad as I think it is. I think it is absolutely as bad as I think it is, and then some. Yeah. But finding a way to joke about the environment was almost harder than joking about mental health because everybody's banging on at the moment about being open about mental health and we need to talk about it and it's time for change. And so we're all doing it. Brilliant. We're all mad. Wonderful. No one wants to joke about the environment because it's too big and too scary and everybody's a hypocrite if they do something but don't do everything else. So learning to kind of gently joke about that so that it was okay and so that it was out there in the public 
conscious and it was something that wasn't quite so numb to talk about yeah that was almost bigger than mental health yeah absolutely i mean it's such a huge and real and issue that is coming i just wonder how you how are you coping kind of day to day when you're seeing maybe people in as you say, on Twitter, maybe ignoring it. I don't know. I don't want to bring on your anxiety about it right now, but how, how do you cope kind of day to day when these things are coming out? And Sometimes I don't. Yeah. Sometimes I feel incredibly gloomy and sad. Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes I feel fighty. Yeah. And do you think comedy is the main way that you're you know bringing some fight into it and bringing some you know in terms of telling other people about it or are you doing anything else online or anything else to um i i think it's probably the main thing because to be honest i don't really know how to how to influence people i think we dig in on things we're scared of so i i try quite hard online and in my comedy to not be too didactic i think I think bringing something up and sort of mentioning it and letting people go away and make their own mind up is much much more helpful than telling them the right answer because you either just have people nodding because they already agreed with you or you have people getting angry because they disagree with you. Mm. So I think bringing things in with a lightness of touch is my best guess at how to put what I think out there without turning people off, but... Yeah, there's a warmth. I know how to be on stage. I'm really confident in myself as a comedian. I rate myself very highly. Yeah. I think I'm a good comedian, and I write good shows, and I write good material. Yeah. I don't think I'm a good human. Off stage, I don't know how to interact with people because I haven't practised it 250 times. I don't... I know how an audience works and I know how an audience en masse reacts to stuff. I don't ever know how an individual is going to react to something. So I find offstage much harder and much more complicated and much more confusing. Whereas on stage, everything I'm saying I've thought about before. Otherwise I wouldn't be saying it on stage. Is that, is that, is that the difference you, you, you put upon the kind of stage and offstage in terms of you've practised being on stage and you haven't practiced what you're saying off stage is that does that bring anxiety off stage yeah i don't really yeah. like social stuff very much yeah. very comfortable with people i know yeah um and i'm very comfortable you know with my husband and my family and things and my friends but yeah like yeah i find it i find it so bizarre and hypocritical i'll happily walk out in front of thousands of people <laughs> and chat to them and blue 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 and i'll improvise with the front row and you but... wouldn't spot it would you no nope. You know. And then if you asked me to go and do a meet and greet afterwards, I would be quaking in my boots and I'd cry and do absolutely anything to get out of it because that's just not where I know how to be my best self. Yeah. So, I don't know. It's stupid, but that's yeah. what your anxieties are for, aren't they? And is that something in particular you've looked at in with therapy or anything else? No, I just no. don't meet people after the show. <laughs> <laughs> don't want to open that door <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean god it's so interesting that most people's you know in in, in when you do surveys of people's and what brings on people's anxiety and fear it is the very thing 
that you do as a job and I do as a job, which is public speaking in front of people. Public speaking is up there with terrorism in terms of people's fears and mm. brings on their anxiety. And your brain, lots of people say the same thing as you. Lots of comedians say the same thing as you, that they find on stage more comfortable. Well, because the great, the great con of stand-up is that people who don't do it expect there could be any number of responses to what you're saying. And actually, when you do it, you very quickly realise that a group of people will nine times out of ten behave in the same way. There will be laughter or there will be no laughter. Mm. The very worst that can happen to me when I go out and tell jokes is that people will find me funny or they will not find me funny. Mm. And then I will go home and none of us will care tomorrow. It doesn't, if an audience don't laugh at me, it doesn't mean I am not funny. It means they didn't find me funny right now. And that doesn't change the way I feel about my jokes or my career. If I went out 50 times in a row and they didn't find me funny, sure, I'll start rethinking what I'm saying. Mm. But... Comedy is so weird because it's so combative and people who don't find you funny will insist that what you're doing is therefore not comedy. But I, I mean, I can't remember who said it, but like if you're listening to a song that you don't like, you don't try and claim it isn't music. You just don't like the song. Whereas if somebody shows you comedy that you don't like, well, it's not funny, is it? It's not comedy. It's just not comedy. Well, it is, my darling. You just don't like it, and that's fine. But people are so quick to be angry about it. Mm. But as soon as you work out the binary responses with going up and saying something, people will like you or they will not like you. Most people won't tell you if they didn't like you. They'll just quietly wait for the next person, and mm. that's fine. Yeah. It's one-on-one -on -one where it's horrible. Like, when I, um, we were just talking about it off mic, but that gig I last saw you at, at the Bill Murray, where I walked off stage... And a group of people hadn't liked me. They hadn't thought I was funny. Absolutely fine. And I walked off stage and a guy was loudly talking about how unfunny I was. And then as I walked past, he sort of made eye contact with me and started talking about how unfunny I was. And I just said, well, if you'd been listening, it might have been funnier. It's quite hard to be funny when you can't hear what I'm saying. You talked all the way through it. Yeah. And he went, well, if you were less of a cunt, it would have been funnier. Oh, and it's like how angry he was that he hadn't found me funny this bile that had built up in him that he was so furious with me for wasting his night out by not being what he wanted mm. that his deduction wasn't just oh here's some comedy that's not for me but he had to say to my face that he thought I was a terrible person for that but he didn't do it when I was on stage so it's not public speaking that's terrifying because he didn't stand up and shout that in front of a group of people who were enjoying it. Mm. That breaks the social convention. But one-on-one -on -one afterwards, where I go back to being a five-foot small woman and he is a tall, well-built man, then he's happy to be verbally horrible to me. That's why I don't like it one-on-one -on -one because it's different. They won't do it in a group. They will do it on their own. It's horrible. I can put up with stuff on stage because I know the stage dynamic and I know that I'm protected on stage. Yeah. So but it's the. Sorry, I go back but... to being a small woman who can't fight off stage. <laughs> I go back to being easily rattled by somebody screaming that they hate me. God, it's, uh, I feel it's like a hard I, job. I know that it? this is a podcast about psychology and comedy, <laughs> but I feel like I've even brought the tone down. <laughs> For comedians who I'm, I'm sorry, I am funny and happy on stage. I really am. No, I mean, this is the great thing about this podcast, hopefully, that if people want to see you doing your job, being funny, <laughs> there's plenty of clips and they come and see you live and they come and see your show. This is something else, you know. Mm. It's, it's an obvious question that, you know, more now, I guess, what keeps us going? What 
makes us want to do this job. As you say, you liked writing and doing that blog. And I, uh, I, I remember reading something, an inter, another interview you'd done maybe, where you said maybe you'd kind of like to be a lecturer maybe and looking at these things kind of more deeply. But the one thing you'd miss is the laughter. Is that, is that, the, is that the thing keeping you in this or one of the main things? Yeah, I think so. Um, mm. I think I increasingly like stand-up because the, the two ways I see the world are through stand-up and through the internet. And I see two very different worlds in those two formats. And on the internet, everything is increasingly screamy and tribal and mad at each other and depressing. And then when I do stand-up, I see exactly the same people as are on the internet, in the flesh, able to stomach ideas they disagree with and able to listen and disagree, but have a good time. And I see more what I think people are. And I like that. Yeah. So stand-up reminds me that actually if you get people in a room with each other and you you just let them be people people are really cool and really nice but if you distance it and make it written down in text and you fire it across the internet people treat each other really badly when they can dehumanize each other yeah whereas stand-up is my reminder that people are really nice to each other yeah with the odd exception of some prick in Leicester oh, sure. Square. <laughs> sure. There's always the exception, isn't there? But yeah. I, I don't see much of the world. Like, who does really? Like, your average day, you see your family, then you commute, then you see the people you work with, then you commute home and you see your family. You're not seeing wide swathes of the world on a regular basis. You see a very thin slice. So mm. all I see is c commuting a little bit and then the stand-up world. I just That's how I see people and I, I I think that that's lovely like I'm pretty left-wing I'm sort of green party obs and I can do environmental stuff and like left-wing stuff and you know jokes about boys and girls and issues on gender and fun stuff like that and mm. you know and I can watch people that will come up to me afterwards and go oh I disagreed with you on nearly everything but that was funny that was a bloody good laugh wasn't it blah, 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 blah. and you go cool yeah you it just whereas if you stuck it out as a one-liner on the internet, all you'd get would be abuse for it. So I like yeah, seeing yeah. people be fleshy people. That audience, even though they seem really nice, could go home and be online, be really horrible people. Mm. Um, it's a nice way of looking at why we're doing what the joy is of live stand-up. I mean, is it, uh, is it mainly a joy for you? Um, yes. Yeah. Very much so. Yeah. That is the happiest... The happiest I am is on stage. I just love it. I know exactly what I'm doing. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, you say you're anxious maybe outside of that environment. When does that anxiety start to lower? I mean, you, you just before the gig or just when you're on stage or? Um, it's really varied. The thing that I really know about my mental health is that there's just no patterns to it. And it's so depressing mm. not to be able to <laughs> predict it or kind of go oh this always works it's kind of a bit more scattergun um yeah. 
I know I hate the bit when you're stood in the wings waiting to go on and there's the gap between the tech person or whoever's bringing you on having gone, okay, we're nearly ready to go. And you're waiting to hear your name. Yeah. I hate that couple of seconds because yeah. I'm just stood there going, what if I can't remember anything I normally say? <laughs> what if I can't do it this time? What if it's suddenly gone? So I hate that, but it's always only a couple of seconds. And then there's almost like a weird drug-induced bliss when I go on stage. Just the whole strata of thoughts goes. And I always think of my brain as being in layers. So when I'm on stage, half of it's, not half of it, sorry, like one layer is thinking about what I'm currently saying. Another layer is thinking about what could come next. Another layer is looking at who's enjoying what, which is helping me influence the layer below it as to deciding what comes next. And then sort of a top higher level is also thinking about what I'm saying, but from a more hypothetical situation in terms of, oh, that's another thought. So that's where the ad libs come from, because you've been thinking about the theory behind what you're saying, which has spawned another thought, which has added <laughs> another thing. But I think a lot of, because you're so busy thinking about all of those things that go into the performance of it, a level of mundane domestic thinking switches off. And yeah. that's always what I want respite from in terms of anxiety is the muddling, intrusive, generalized, cyclical thoughts that provoke sadness. Yeah, that's uh, that's one of the great things about stand up. Um, so how about the Live at the Apollo gig that you did recently? Was that a similar pattern? I've never walked out on that stage myself through that smoke. How that was that? That was amazing. That yeah. was just... That was such a dream come true to do that gig. And it had been such a surprise to get it and such a short turnaround. I only found out I was doing it two weeks to the day before we filmed it. Okay. So I didn't have a lot of prep time. I found out on the Tuesday. I had the run through on the Monday. So I had to have my whole set ready and prepped. And then we filmed it eight days later. And then the next day I flew out to Dubai to do a 10-day set of gigs. So the whole thing had happened in this big is this really happening thing? Um, yeah. And I just remember walking out with a million thoughts in my head and then doing the first two jokes and the audience just went for them. Mm. And I think like, oh, maybe I'm being wrong, but I feel like one of my early jokes got this beautiful round of applause and I just relaxed after that. And I thought, this is the Apollo but it's also a gig. And if there's one thing I know how to do, <laughs> it's gig. <laughs> so I really relaxed after that. And then I remember finishing. And I, I screwed something up because I had this material that um, was all about Debenhams, the department store. And they said, you can do it, but you can't say Debenhams. And I was like, fine. And then I got partway into it and I remembered to change it on the first instance. And then on the second one, I said Debenhams and then just stopped and went, oh, fuck, I knew I'd fuck that up. <laughs> and the whole audience just burst into another round of applause and laughter. Oh, and so I sort of like scuttled to the back of the stage and was like messing about sort of Max Miller style with like a producer who was off stage going, sorry, I've cocked it up. I'm just going to do that <laughs> bit again. And the audience were having a lovely laugh at that. So there was just a really nice moment where I'd messed it up 
and been really genuine and they went with it as an audience. They liked seeing that. Because that's why you go and see a TV record, isn't it? You want to see the stuff that doesn't make the edit and yeah. didn't make the edit, obviously. <laughs> um, and then after that, there was just such a beautiful atmosphere and such a lovely feeling. And I remember finishing up and taking a second to just stand and look at the auditorium mm. and thinking, wow, like if this is all my career ever is, this was enough. How was the meet and greet afterwards? I didn't do it, mate. <laughs> <laughs> Met my mum. <laughs> Went to the pub with my aunt and uncle, <laughs> like a true rock star. <laughs> oh, nice. So talking about happiness and these few shows that we've been talking about, um, have won multiple awards. And uh, does that help you? Psychological? Sounds like a stupid question, but I've heard you in other interviews talk about it's the recognition that you've been craving. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I don't think, oh, I'd love to be like steady enough in my own self-esteem that I wasn't craving that recognition. But then I think it's worth admitting I was, of course, yeah, yeah. I'm craving recognition. Um, I think I've been nominated four years in a row for the Chortle Best MC Award thing. Mm. And I've never won it. And it's based on an audience vote and I never share it, which is partly why I don't win it. Mm. Um, and the awards I have won... I've won three awards now, and they've all been voted by comedians. Yeah. And that's meant the world to me, because I don't have the biggest like online following. So things voted for by audiences, if I'm going up against somebody with 100,000 followers or whatever, you know, I'm never going to win it, and that's fine. They've earned their following, they've earned their award. Fine by me. But comedy is such a weird thing that is so difficult to get right, and then made to look so easy, that... Having the people that know the mechanisms think what you've done is good is really cool. Because even reviewers will review things and say dumb stuff like, thank goodness she's so upbeat because some of the jokes are very dark. And you think, well, how on earth are you a reviewer and using thank goodness there instead of well done for crafting it to be those things? Whereas comics will always say, oh, you've written that well and that was a good you know that joke coming dead after that one is good structure well done for doing that comics give you credit for everything in the show having been your decision no one else does that yeah. so winning stuff based on comics voting it makes me feel like i'm not wasting my time you mentioned social media a few times have you ever come off social media have you ever thought about coming off Yes, I have a real patchy relationship with social media because I'm a very lonely person and I spend a lot of time on my own in this career. So social media can be like a lovely window to company. But mm. also, I do think that scrolling it and looking at it too much is really negative. Yeah. Um, so I have a system. I don't have any of the apps on my phone and I stay logged out of them on the browser so that rather than sort of thumb muscle memory opening Twitter and just finding myself scrolling it and I haven't even noticed I'm doing it. Yeah. I now have to manually put my username and password in every time I want to go to it. Okay. And that helps me to have a few seconds where I go, Do, is there anything I'm looking for or want to see or I'm going to say or am I just going here because it's where I go? Yeah. I find that quite helpful for, for not indulging in it too much. And how about the future? What do you, uh, as we're nearing the end of our time here, what, uh, 
Oh God, do you mean as a planet or just as a podcast? <laughs> no, not as a planet. <laughs> <laughs> How do you, do you look into the future very much or do you just look into the immediate future? I, ha- I don't look into the future a lot because everything I thought would be my future of being a mum of kids that had a house like the one I grew up in and all of that is not happening. So I feel like the immediate future is better for for actually taking stock of what I've got and being happy about it and trying to get some satisfaction from it. Um, Mm. I'm really lucky. I've got the career of my dreams. I've Mm. got the man of my dreams. I've got a healthy body, a pretty healthy mind most of the time when I'm on the pills to keep it healthy. (laughs) I am so so lucky i am so beyond lucky compared to 99.9% of human beings that have ever existed i am so lucky and focusing on right now and the immediate future is the best way to remind myself of that because there are too many what ifs in the distant future it's as i say it's just uh, last time i saw you do stand up and uh, it's just great seeing you talking about these things and um you know, shining a light on all of these subjects while being incredibly funny and entertaining and giving people a great night out. It's a, uh, it's a rare skill and you pull it off with a plum. Thanks. So thank you and thank you for coming on today. So that is our show for today. Join us again next week for more Psychomedy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify UK or wherever you get your podcasts. If you liked it, please give us a five-star review. It helps other people to find us and any psychopaths leave three-star reviews. Psychomedy was written and presented by me, Nathan Casty, BSc in Psychology and produced and edited by Mike Hansen, BA English for Pop People Productions. Theme music by Mike as well, so that's Psychomedy. Please subscribe and rate and listen back on all the great episodes so far. They're listed and there's video clips and more at psychomedy.co.uk. Follow us on social media at Pop People UK, at Psychomedy Pod, at Nathan Cassidy and at Laura Lex. Thank you again, Laura. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> Lots of love and see you again next week. Ball.